Hello and welcome to The Bunker USA. I am your host, Alex Andreu. It's that time of the year when the shops play debt ceiling carols, we hang our debt ceiling stockings, write our debt ceiling greeting cards and muse. Gosh, that came round fast. Simply put, there's a legal limit on how much the United States federal government can borrow in debt markets. Before World War I, Congress had to approve every time government wanted to borrow money. During World War I, it needed to borrow so much, they consolidated it into one overall limit. And since then, it's been raised continually, almost 80 times since 1960, more than 20 times since the year 2000. My guest today is Professor of Political Economy at Stanford. He is the co-author of Leading with Values and the editor of Frontiers in Social Innovation, and he recently wrote about the debt ceiling. Welcome to the bunker, Neil Malhotra. Thanks for having me. Neil, can we begin with basics? The line consistently from hardline Republicans is that raising the debt ceiling is about spending more money. More knowledgeable commentators say it is about paying expenses already incurred. Can you clear this up for our listeners? Sure. I mean, I think there's a distinction uh, between a budget and the debt ceiling. So when Congress passes a budget and the president signs it, you've legally authorized the spending of all this money. Um, Usually these budgets are passed on things called continuing resolutions, which is we're just going to be doing what we did before but then add a certain amount uh, percentage-wise to the budget. Um, Mm -hmm. That's so you don't have to renegotiate the budget, which is oftentimes very politically dicey. But that's distinct from the debt ceiling, which says, okay, we've already legally authorized this money, and therefore we, we just, it's sort of like a pro forma way of saying, okay, we can spend the money we've already authorized. But I actually have kind of a different perspective on this than many commentators. I think many commentators would say, well, the money's already been authorized, so you should just raise the debt ceiling but because it's not actually reducing spending to reduce the debt ceiling. But the Republicans look at it a different way. The way they look at it as, is that this is part of the rules of the game. So if this is an opportunity for us to extract concessions, then that's part of the game. It's kind of like saying, oh, well, you don't get three points for a three-point shot just because you're behind this line. The Republicans would say, well, this line exists. It's part of the rules. So we're going to take advantage of them. Okay. The last time there was a big battle on this, I remember reading Ted Cruz, who is not exactly a bleeding heart socialist, say, and I quote, a lot of Republicans wanted exactly what Barack Obama wanted, exactly what Nancy Pelosi wanted, exactly what Harry Reid wanted, which is to raise the debt ceiling. But they wanted to be able to tell gullible constituents back home they didn't do it. Why has it become such a political football? Well, so this is sort of a complicated thing where we assume that when a congressman votes in the House of Representatives or the Senate, they're voting on their personal preferences, their actual beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But oftentimes what they personally want to happen is different from what they want their constituents to see. So when the Republicans controlled Congress during the, let's say, the debt ceiling crisis of uh, the early 2010s, you had a situation where if you just ask people, what is your personal opinion on what you want to happen? The vast majority of the House of Representatives would pass to raise the debt ceiling. But many of those people did not want to like go back home and say, I did that, because then perhaps a primary challenger could make a big deal out of saying, oh, they spend all this money. 
So what they needed was they needed basically all the Democrats to vote for the debt ceiling and then a few moderate Republicans who were willing to vote for it because they came from moderate districts. And that allowed the debt ceiling to pass. So that's something what we call getting rolled, which is when the majority in a legislature puts a bill on the floor and they lose the bill. This rarely happens in the U.S. In the U.K., if that happened, that would be like the call for like a, a no confidence vote in the government. Yeah. So the U.S. is just different where you can have a role, but the government doesn't change or there's no no confidence vote. So those who say that if the debt ceiling is not raised, it effectively means that America will default on some of its debt payments. Is that right? Um, well, we've never kind of gone that far. I think the complicated thing is the last time this happened in 2010, uh, what you saw was is that S&P and Moody's, the bond rating agencies, lowered the quality of the U.S. debt. Then every market responded, and then the markets tanked, like seriously, which means the markets yeah. were anticipating a default, and then they quickly readjusted. I think the best example would be what Liz's trusts fiscal plans, like yes. what would they actually result in? Well, it's hard to know because right when she announced them, the market started tanking and they started reacting, the bond markets reacted. And so they very quickly thought that was going to be real. So they kind of then changed it. Um, I mean, I think the complicated thing is that the U.S. Treasury is not very well set up to, you know, to kind of pay bills selectively. So technically, even if the debt ceiling is not lifted, you know, there's enough money to pay the interest on the debt, which is the most important payment you can make. But the Treasury is not really set up to like only make those interests and then like not pay for food stamps or something. Right, like that. right. So I think that's the problem uh, and like why people would say that this would default, because if you basically don't have ways of allocating the money to the interest, then, you know, we've never really reached this position before. So so when Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says that unless the debt ceiling is raised, the government will reach a position of default on the national debt in June, she's slightly overstating the case, but not by much. Well, I think the most important thing is you found in the UK is that what happens first is that the markets anticipate everything, right? So mm -hmm. if they don't do this, the mar like the, the value of government debt will like really fall. And then you, you, that's going to lead to a lot of issues that have ripple effects in the market. So I don't know if, if you guys have been following the business news in the US. Um, but I, I have. <laughs> okay, oh, yes. So there's, I, do you know about Silicon Valley Bank? Mm. So this is, a lot of people are claiming this is the next Lehman Brothers. I mean, maybe that's hyperbole. Right. But this is a bank that does a lot of lending to tech companies in the Bay Area. And because of um, their balance sheets and because the, the government has been raising the interest rates so high, they're just in a very bad financial position. So it, and there's like a run on this bank kind of occurring right now. Yeah, there was a so, sort of tumble of the value of their shares when they when they launched, right? And so it's, I, there's some people who are claiming we don't know that this if this defaults, then they have a lot of like investments in tech companies. They provide a lot of credit to tech companies that this is going to cause these ripple effects in the market, just like one investment bank, Lehman Brothers, did, right? And the market started to lose its confidence, et cetera. So I think a lot of what Janet Yellen's concerns are is 
kind of what the market reaction will be. And there can be, mm-hmm. and you know, when you get runs in the market and people start panicking, uh, it can be, we know from history, that's really bad. And I mean, I think the yeah. UK experienced that very recently, right? On the debt ceiling, a lot of economists say it is anachronistic as a concept and shouldn't exist at all. What, what do you think? I mean, I, I think if you look at it technically, that's probably correct. Um, but if you look at it from a political science angle, the question would be like, what would be the motivation, the political motivation to get rid of it? So I think economists oftentimes think of like, oh, what is um, the economically correct thing to do? And it mm-hmm. seems ridiculous to be have an institution, this debt ceiling, which no other country really has on earth, that if you've already said you're going to spend the money, then why do you have this extra hurdle? But, you know, the political science explanation would be, okay, well, what this seems to be a very useful tool for the Republicans to get things that they want because they can play brinksmanship. And I think if you're kind of like a game theorist, you would say the crazier you are, the better, right? Because you can actually, (laughs) if you're actually willing to let the country go down, you're in a much stronger negotiating position than if you're not. So I think the Republicans historically have been in very good negotiating positions because they credibly are viewed by the other side is that they will tank the whole thing. So it's sort of a game of chicken where the crazier person wins the game of chicken. Can I ask you something on that, Neil? Um, Is it always Republican-controlled Congresses that hold out on Democrat presidents? Or do they give Republican presidents as much trouble? And does it happen completely the other way around? Well, so I mean, all of this debt things that started with Obama and Trump's uh, during the Trump administration, the Democrats caused no problem with the debt ceiling. It was sort of a non-issue. They spent a lot of money. They raised, you know, they raised the debt ceiling. There, there was no issue. This this seems to be a unique thing when you have a Democratic president and a Republican Congress. Mm. Okay, so going back to 2011, how was that showdown resolved in practice? Well, so what eventually happened is, I mean, I think different political commenters can have different views of it. You also have to realize that back then there was this other thing going on that was a little bit separate called the fiscal cliff. So the fiscal cliff was that the United States had passed all of these tax cuts in George W. Bush's first term in about 2001. And we have this rule called reconciliation, which is essentially you can pass these tax cuts with a 50 threshold instead of 60 in the Senate, but they have to sunset in a certain number of years if they're going to have budget deficit implications. So the tax cuts were also being kind of gone away in 2011. So it was like a complicated fiscal environment. And what eventually happened was, is that President Obama agreed to reduce spending through this thing called sequestration. So actually, it's very funny that uh, President Obama is viewed to be like a very, quote unquote, fiscally responsible president because of this debt ceiling showdown. Whereas if you look at Trump and Biden, they've both increased the size of the national debt incredibly during their time in office, mainly because they did not at at that at this point had debt ceiling showdowns. Is the fact that the United States spends effectively more than it takes in? Is it the problem it appears in the long term? I know that over here in the UK, simpler analogies that equate basically the economy to a household budget and say we must live within our means, they suggest it is unsustainable in the long term and they have real cut through with voters. 
But a lot of experts suggest that is a completely wrong way of looking at it, that, that you know, national economies, nothing like a household economy. What, what do you think? I mean, I, I think there's actually legitimate debate around this. So um, I agree there are experts that claim that, you, you know, uh, the debt service is not a huge deal. It's not the right analogy to look at, that really you want to look at things like debt to GDP ratios and things like that. But I mean, there are legitimate economists that raise issues with the size of the debt. So for example, you know, there's Kenneth Rogoff and Carmen Reinhart, you know, and I believe one of them was the president of the, or the chief economist at the World Bank. So, I mean, these are serious people and, you know, they look at historical cases and there are cases where if the debt becomes a huge, huge multiple or part of the GDP, you know, they claim that there's historical examples of kind of collapses financially. I mean, if you look at many countries or many countries are spending way more than they bring in, and that doesn't seem to be a huge issue. Um, I mean, I, I'd ask you like Japan, for example, Japan is kind of the poster child for a huge, huge debt to GDP ratio. I mean, some people would say, oh, that country's doing just fine. There's nothing to worry about. Other people would say that country's in big trouble. Like it's been economically stagnating for 30 years. It doesn't have a way to take care of its aging population. And I think the other thing on the background of this is that the main reason the U.S. has gotten away with this is that it has the world's reserve currency, right? So they yeah. basically have very cheap ways to raise debt because people really need dollars. It's a very safe haven for assets. So I'll tell you, I would say Argentina's debt to GDP ratio was not good for it, but the U.S. is not Argentina. Uh, you know, yeah. the U.S. is in a much stronger financial position. Um, and, and there's kind of these theories that I think some people would call kind of kooky theories like modern monetary theory, which argue that it doesn't matter that really like you can basically spend as much as you want and it, and it really wouldn't matter. I mean, I, I always say the truth is like somewhere in between, like it logically doesn't make sense that like the debt would never matter. Because if that was true, why would you not just spend like $100 trillion and just print as much money as possible, right? Um, I don't think anyone believes that. You know. Yeah, I th I think MMT economists would suggest that the controlling mechanism is actually inflation, that the reason you can't just print $100 trillion is because you would create huge inflation, and that is the natural mechanism that controls money supply, rather than the ability to pay. I think the basic battle seems to me to be uh, very similar to what's going on here in the UK, that you can either view the budget as a sort of pre-existing pocket money and say, this is how much we have, where do we spend it? Or you can start the other way around and say, what do people expect the state to deliver? How much does that cost? And how do we fund it? And it seems to me that both in America and here, often the debate is, well, this is how much money we have. How do we apportion it between the various things that, that we want to do, right? Well, I would say many deficit hawks who are, you know, let's say not the pol politicians, but expert economists would agree with the latter way of thinking of things and still mm -hmm. believe we should contain deficits. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, th I would say they would think the inflation mechanism is like quite serious. And if inflation gets out of control, that can also unravel economies. So is it fair to say that you think that 
you know, the the sort of the mechanics of the debt ceiling are problematic because you end up reaching these showdowns all the time. But that a mechanism for keeping government honest in terms of what it is it spends is probably a good thing. Well, I mean, I, I think that's a issue of like what you think is right and wrong. I try to stay away from that. But I guess what people like one way I would reframe that is to say, I think there's very little economic rationale for a debt ceiling, but there could be a lot of political rationale for it. Hmm. Why are so many saying that this time round the standoff has the potential to be very toxic? Um, I think one thing is if you look at the last debt ceiling, the Republican position in the House of Representatives was very different. So you had um, John Boehner, who, you know, is a, a like a mainstream conservative as the the Speaker of the House. They have like a pretty healthy majority coming out of the 2010 elections, which was a mm-hmm. Republican landslide. So, you know, you had some extreme people, but they really could not like dictate to John Boehner what exactly went on. And you know, Boehner was able to like cobble things with Nancy Pelosi to basically kind of get rolled and pass these votes. Yeah. Uh, Kevin McCarthy is in like a very different position. I think most people say he has a lot of similarities to Boehner, that he's like a mainstream conservative. Um, but at the same time, they, the Republicans kind of flopped in the 2022 midterms. So their majority is very small. And basically his speakership vote, which was kind of this disastrous thing we have not seen in, yes. you know, a like hundred years or something, is sort of like the harbinger for what these votes on the debt ceiling are going to look like, where you have a small group of extremists who can hold the country ransom um, mm. and get these concessions. And a lot of people say that, you know, kind of Kevin McCarthy's position is very similar to the way a UK prime minister would be, which is like they, they can remove him. Right. Like very mm-hmm. easily. Uh, so I think they have a lot of leverage. And that's what makes this situation a little different, because I think in 2010, a lot of the commentators were like, oh, you, know, you have John Boehner, you have Barack Obama. These are all serious people. They'll like get down. They'll figure it out. This time around, it's like, well, there could be some people who are just very extreme and unserious that um, could make the situation much more complicated. Hmm. Or maybe appear so if, if we go back. Yeah. If we go back to your game theory point, right? Maybe the fact that the Republican Party appears to be crazier this time round will secure a lot more concessions for them. It could be true. That could be true. I mean, I think it depends what both sides learned from 2011. And you know, hmm. I think Obama has spoken about this, but like, I think in 2011 there was a you know view that like Democrats got kind of beaten in that in that debate and they would never do it again. Mm-hmm. And then the Republican, what they learned is, oh, you can really take advantage of these guys. So if that's what they both learned, that could be a recipe for disaster. Can I ask you one penultimate, quite quite open, and I am aware quite unfair question. How do you think this ties into the oncoming presidential election? How how do you think it plays into the politics, for example, between Trump and DeSantis or Biden seeking re-election, do, do you think the way this battle shapes up has the potential to affect actually who stands against each other in, in uh, the presidential election? It, it could. I think that's an interesting question. I mean, it's more speculative, but I think the historical example I would give is uh, 
1996 presidential election in the U.S. So if you remember, there was these government shutdowns, and that was the Mm. first time the government is shut down in a long time. And it's not quite a debt ceiling crisis, but in the 90s, that was like a big deal. Like, you know, when people couldn't get government services, when national parks were shut down. And, you know, the advantage, the president has like advantages and disadvantages. The disadvantage is that he oftentimes takes the brunt of what's going on in the country and also the credit. But like the president also has the bully pulpit. So Bill Clinton was such an effective president, especially an effective communicator. He was able to blame Newt Gingrich for the government shutdown. And so many people would say that that kind of prevented Newt Gingrich from running against Clinton in 96 and also really hurt the Senate majority leader, Bob Dole, at the time in the election. Um, They were able to really cast Bob Dole as being against Social Security, against Medicare, shutting down the government. Trump and DeSantis are very, very different than Gingrich and Dole in that they're kind of outside Washington right now. So Trump is a private citizen, um, potentially Mm. under the threat of indictment. DeSantis is the governor of a state that doesn't deal with Washington. So, I mean, I, I think that's an interesting question, but I think a big difference from previous times is that the main competitors in the Republican Party are sort of outside the Washington establishment. So it's possible they could both maybe take this, use this to their advantage to say, hey, look, you know, we're both outside Washington or Trump could say this never happened under my watch, things like that. Mm. And of course, ultimately, Clinton got reelected, didn't he? He did. Yeah. And I think I think one of the reasons among many is that he sort of won the debate on the government shutdown. So if Biden, who I think is not as good of a communicator as Clinton, but can can win this showdown or win the debate around the showdown, it could strengthen his position for 2024. Mm. OK, one last question to just ra- wrap things up. What are, what do you think are the sort of pinch points to look for just for listeners to be aware in terms of a timeline, when do you think this will begin to come to a head? One thing I would look for is when, if Janet Yellen starts announcing sort of accounting or financial tricks that the Treasury Department is doing. Prior to 2011, you basically saw the Treasury Secretary, Tim Geithner at the time, doing this kind of stuff. So that, like, you know, I, I am not an ex- a financial economist, but there's various accounting mechanisms to basically can help forestall and change the date of when the debt crisis is coming, you know, basically changing when different payments are due, things like that. So I think the markets are looking at that. And I think people should be looking at the markets because they tend to react more quickly. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is the lesson. I think, I think the Liz Trust situation is a good lesson for the U.S., which is, you know, you can say a lot of stuff on the cable news channels, you can bluster a lot, but you cannot fool markets. Um, now, some people view that as a bad thing, which is, you know, that the health of our polities are dependent on these financial players. Um, but the good thing about that is, is that markets are very democratic in many ways. And you have many people making buying and tra- selling decisions, which then reveal information. And so, I mean, in many ways, prices are, are beautiful because they reveal information about the world. So I would look to what Yellen is doing, look to how the markets react. Neil Malhotra, thank you so much for being so plain on a subject that is often made impenetrable. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for your great questions. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like our work, you can and should raise your debt ceiling and support our work on the funding platform Patreon for as little as £3 a month. Just search for Bunker. 
podcast Patreon. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker USA was written and presented by Alex Andreu. The producers were Alex Reese and Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, with music and audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and artwork is by James Parrott. The Bunker USA is a Podmasters production.